Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, let's dive in. Matthew chapter 8, we're looking at verses 5 through 13 today. If you're new with us, welcome. My name is Dustin. I'm the pastor teacher here. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back. Feel free to grab one of those. That is our gift to you. Please feel free to take that home. Well, as you turn to Matthew chapter 8, let me review. Last Sunday, we watched Jesus turn his Sermon on the Mount into the Sermon on the Move. After preaching his sermon, Jesus walks down from the mountain. He's on his way home to Capernaum. The crowd is following him. And then suddenly, there's an unexpected and really an unwanted guest. Uh, He just kind of shows up. He creates this uh, bit of chaos here. And the reason that he does that is because he's got leprosy. He's actually in the final stages of leprosy. So the crowd is freaked out. They're alarmed. Uh, Some people start to run away in in panic. Um, Really, he looks like someone from a horror movie, and he also smells like death. He falls down before the feet of Jesus. He asks for a miracle. The leper knew that Jesus could heal him. He had the faith in that, but he didn't know if Jesus would. So as we learn, Jesus was more than willing to heal this man. And in the process, we learn one main key point from last Sunday. And that is, it's never too late to be touched by God. It's never too late to be touched by God. A couple things from this. Number one, the leper was very aware of his condition. This poor man not only said he was unclean, he knew that as well. And number two, he knew that he, his situation was, was hopeless. It was helpless. This man really was the poster child for the walking dead. And at the end of the day, we learn that this man represents all of us. Now, we may not have this outward physical disease that everybody can see, but we do have an inward spiritual disease, and that's called sin. In other words, we're all spiritual lepers. Uh, There is only one physician who has the cure. There is only one priest who uh, can offer forgiveness. And there's only one king who can pay the debt. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is all of those things and more to us. So that leper from last week, that is you and me. So we all have a case of spiritual leprosy. And apart from Jesus, we're we're all living in a leper colony, right? It's called the world. And apart from the saving grace that is found in the bloody cross and in the empty grave, tragically, this is our best life now. If we don't find hope in Jesus, it is. Well, today, if you thought coming to church and... The pastor calling you a spiritual leper was a bit weird. 
Well, just wait. It gets a little bit stranger today. Uh, Last Sunday, Jesus healed someone who really was the epitome of the walking dead. And today, Jesus helps someone who the Jews, they want this man dead. We meet someone who is enemy number one, and yet he comes to Jesus asking for a miracle. Uh, Today's narrative has some vital lessons for us. Uh, We can all apply these things to our life. So what are they? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Just as we raise our voices to sing those songs to the Lord, let's raise our voices as we read Scripture uh, together as a church family this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come in healing? Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, to another come, and he comes, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed, and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, go, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Please pray with me, guys. Father, the psalmist writes this, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I put my hope in your word. Father, many of us have got got up early this morning and we have prayed. We've asked for help. We have learned to put our hope in your word. We have learned to trust you through certain storms of life. And this morning, you're going to be teaching us about miracles. You have a lot to say about miracles. There's a lot of confusion about miracles today. And Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you clear up that confusion for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Well, let's take a deeper look here at verse 5. So when he, that's Jesus... When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. So before we dive into this, this message here, let me, let me preface something so we're all on the same page. This narrative here is also found in Luke chapter 7, and it's also, there's, a, there's a, a similar story in John chapter 4 as well. John's account, that is a different story altogether. It's a similar story, but it's different. 
Uh, this one in Matthew and Luke's gospel, this is, the, this is the same story. But even though it's the same story, it is a bit confusing because both stories are told from different perspectives, uh, different angles. Um, so let's keep in mind here that each gospel was written to a specific audience for a particular uh, reason. So Matthew's theme, we're studying the, Matthew's gospel. Um, his theme is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to see that over and over and over again as we read. His audience is the Jewish Christians. Luke's theme really emphasizes Jesus' humanity, and Luke's audience is Gentile Christians. So when you start putting the four Gospels together, we, we have a complete testimony of, of Jesus. So all that to say this, according to Matthew, the centurion himself informed Jesus about this need. Luke, on the other hand, he says that the centurion sent some elders of the Jews, so some mediators, we could say middlemen, uh, with this request. So it's a little confusing there, right? Which one is it? This, did the centurion go and ask, or was it the, the middlemen? Do we have a contradiction in Scripture? Uh, no, there, there, there is no contradiction here. What, what Matthew does is he abbreviates the story while Luke's gospel provides more details because these details are important to his Gentile audience. So Luke is specific regarding what the centurion said through messengers here. And this concept of, of speaking through others, that was an accepted form of communication in the first century. So think of it this way, when we, and we'll get to Luke's account here in a moment. But think of it this way. The messenger represents the sender. So, and we see this biblically as well, don't we? The Father sent Jesus. Jesus sent the 12 apostles. And we still do this today. We've got U.S. embassies all over the world, and it's the ambassador of the embassy that speaks for the president. So, with that preface, let's dive in. Verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, uh, Capernaum was a thriving city. It's a city of commerce. It's busy. It's dynamic. It's vibrant. Small businesses were essential to Capernaum. Fishing trade, obviously very big there. Merchandising, also very, very important to the economy. Lots of business being done. There's a lot of money trading hands in Capernaum. And because of that, Rome set up a tax station. And if there's a tax station, they support that with military force. So that's the background where we are. That's Capernaum. Let's meet the players today. Jesus is walking home. He has just preached the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus was interrupted by the leper last week, he is, he is again interrupted. Verse 5, a centurion came to him, came to Jesus. So a centurion is a Roman soldier who leads anywhere from about 80 to 100 men. An easy way to remember uh, centurion is century. Century being 100, centurion. Um, actually, Scripture talks about three specific centurions, these Roman soldiers. We're talking about this guy today. Number two, Cornelius. If that name sounds familiar, he's a God-fearing centurion in Acts chapter 10. Um, Peter baptized him and his whole family. And then thirdly, a, a centurion who was present at Jesus' crucifixion, 
he actually identified Jesus as the Son of God in Mark chapter 15 and Matthew 27. So we've got several centurions here in the Gospels. What do these men do? Well, they are elite soldiers. These men are warriors. This man has proved himself in battle. He's a killer. Let that sink in. He's a killer. Only the most talented soldiers become centurions. So think of like Delta Force or the Green Berets or the Navy SEALs. But the centurions are also intelligent. They're also business savvy. Financially, these guys are wealthy. Rome took very good care of their soldiers. So if we're going to grasp what's really happening today at this, inside this narrative, think of this particular centurion as a Nazi captain in World War II. That's the picture being painted here. The picture is disturbing. It's intended to be because it really gives this explosive emotional picture of what's taking place. We have a centurion coming before the Jews. So that's the scene, right? Wealthy Roman soldier, he makes his living by oppressing these people. And now he's approaching a poor Galilean carpenter turned rabbi. So in other words, we got a mighty man of war coming before the prince of peace. Verse 5, a centurion came to Jesus. He came to him. Now, it would seem that everything about this, this, this centurion uh, would prevent him from doing this. He's a Gentile, meaning he's of the wrong race because Jesus is Jewish. He's wearing the wrong uniform. And if you think we've got race problems today, wow. I mean, the first century, even more so. He worshiped the wrong God. He worshiped Caesar. And aside from the race problem, the uniform, and along with his theology, the soldier doesn't let pride or doubt or money, even the language barrier, the distance that we're going to see here. He doesn't let the, the idea of his power get in the way of visiting Jesus. The soldier has all these things against him. And yet he still comes to Jesus. So in verse 5, a centurion came to him, okay, and now he's pleading. He's pleading. Your translation may say appealing. It may say imploring. So this is odd. This is really strange because from the world's perspective, we got a, we've got a man who has all the proper resume, right? He's financially able. He's powerful. And yet this man... Really, this mighty man of Rome, this warrior, is begging for Jesus' help. The centurion, make no doubt about it, he is in a panic. And yet, Roman soldiers don't panic. He's used to being in control. And yet, this situation is completely out of his control. Verse 6, he says, Lord, Lord. So, time out. Notice here that this centurion calls Jesus Lord, just like the leper from last week. Now, Lord can either mean sir, or it can mean master, ruler as a deity. Uh, the, con the, the context of the conversation dictates which one. Regardless, notice here that we've got a Roman soldier under Caesar's lordship calling Jesus Lord. 
This is like a, a modern day soldier in ISIS, right? He's being converted. And that alone is a miracle in itself. Verse 6, he said, Lord, my servant is lying at home and he's paralyzed. He's in terrible agony. So do you feel the urgency here? You see the emotions? This man is, he's more than rattled. He is in a panic. Now, what's so odd about this statement is that centurions, they are characteristically brutal. They are heartless men. <laughs> you, you don't become a centurion for having the spiritual gift of mercy. You don't. The average slave owner, which he is of one, right? He's a slave owner. He didn't give a rip about slaves. He doesn't care about servants. Slaves to slave owners were just like animals. If one of, the, if one of his animals gets sick, well, you just put it out of the misery. Romans, actually, their, their worldview on slaves, the, the only difference between a, a slave and an animal was that the slave talked. That was it. So the question becomes, okay, time out. Why? Why does this man care so much about this servant? Well, centurions, they signed on for 20 years of service to Rome. And during that time, they could not legally marry. Now, they, girlfriends were tolerated, uh, but a wife and a family were not. Rome didn't want anyone or anything in the way of their soldiers serving Rome. And since centurions were army commanders, right, they had a lot of people underneath them, they didn't socialize with them. They didn't socialize with regular soldiers. So with all that being said, a centurion's closest family often might be their slaves or their servants. Uh, there is a clue here in Greek that we can't see in English, and this is, this is pretty amazing. Matthew's word for servant in this verse has two meanings. Number one, it can either mean child or it can mean beloved servant. So let's, let's read it again in that context. Verse 6. The centurion says, Lord, my beloved servant, or he could be saying my child, is lying at home and he's paralyzed and he is in agony. So this man's servant may be his son, and, and that's why the emotions are running so high here. Now, many times in the Gospels, we see people carry um, their sick friends, their sick uh, family members to Jesus. Why didn't this man do that? Why didn't he just pick him up and bring him? Well, probably because he's too sick to be moved. Verse 7, so Jesus says to this man, he says, am I to come and heal him? Now, verse 7 is a bit tricky. If you've got the CSB translation or the NIV translation, you're going to see Jesus' response here as a question. Other translations, though, they have this as a statement. They, they say, I will come and heal him. So why is that? Grammatically in the Greek, either translation is possible. Keep in mind, there, there, there's no uh, punctuation in Greek. So um, it does make sense for Jesus to ask a question here because the centurion never asked Jesus to heal his servant. He simply just reported the problem, right? 
So whether Jesus asks the question or makes the statement, that doesn't matter in verse 7. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is willing to help. Now, why didn't the centurion ask? Your guess is as good as mine. It's hard to know. But please know this, the centurion is asking for a miracle. He is asking for a blessing that belongs to the Jews, belongs to God's people. It does not belong to him. So we've got some similarities from last week, don't we? Look at what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I don't know. Let me, let me go see. Let me, let me first take a look at him. Let me see if I can do anything for him. I, I'm going to do my best. But don't get your hopes up. Is that what Jesus does? No, that's not what Jesus does. If it's a statement, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And then Jesus just starts walking towards the house. Now, what do you, at this moment, what do we expect the centurion to do or say? I, I'm reading the story and I expect him to go, oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, let's go. We got to hurry. But is that what he said? Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but just say the word. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man of authority. I've got soldiers under, underneath me. And if I say to this one, go, you know what he does? He goes. If I say to another, come, he comes. And if I say to my servant, do this, he does it. So this centurion, he, he's instantly taken back by what Jesus, how Jesus responds. And he actually pushes back against Jesus. This is fascinating. I mean, why would he do that? This is exactly what, what he asked for. Well, he pushes back for a couple reasons. First and foremost, really, the Jews don't enter a Gentile's home. Uh, this is a cultural no-no. It would be similar to a white man in, in the back of, uh, sitting in the back of the bus or drinking from a black-only drinking fountain in the 1950s and 60s in America. Secondly, Jewish tradition said that Jesus would then be ceremonially unclean. He would be unclean. He would be contaminated if he entered the centurion's home. Doesn't matter to Jesus. He, he was willing to, to do that and cross that line. So the cultural taboo here doesn't bother Jesus at all, but notice that it does bother the centurion. And then secondly, and more importantly, this centurion calls Jesus Lord again. He calls him Lord twice. Now, this is much more than a simple sir. This is much more than just being courteous. This man has faith. Keep in mind, he's the centurion of Capernaum. He knows about Jesus. Not, so not only are the scribes and the Pharisees watching Jesus, Rome is too. Now, why is Rome watching Jesus? Well, Rome is not going to tolerate another Lord. They will not tolerate another king. So all eyes are on Jesus here. Uh, this centurion has intel on Jesus. He's in the know. Let's take a look at Luke's gospel here. This is going to give us a clue to what's going on. Luke chapter 7, verse 2. 
A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, he was sick and he was about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him, saying, this man is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. And by the way, if you're ever visiting Israel, that synagogue that this man built may be a, t- uh, a stop on your tour, because it's still, it's still there today. Verse 6, Jesus went with them and And he was not far from the house. The centurion sent some friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now, isn't it, I find that fascinating that the Jewish leaders said that the centurion is worthy, and yet he doesn't consider himself worthy at all. So just as John the baptizer felt unworthy to baptize Jesus, this centurion felt unworthy to welcome Jesus into his home. So what's, what's the point of all that? Well, let me ask you, would you want the mayor of Cottonwood or the governor of Arizona or maybe the king of England or the president of the United States, let alone Jesus of Nazareth, just showing up at your front door with little or no warning? Yeah, wouldn't you want to tidy up the place just a little bit? Yeah, we, we see this pushback. So in verse 9, he says, look, Jesus, I too am a man under authority. I've got soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 9, it just seems out of place, doesn't it? It just seems weird. I find it odd that someone would respond like this from a person you're asking a miracle from. But when you think about who's asking, that puts it in perspective. The officer is using his military training, his education, his worldview along with his experience to illustrate why Jesus doesn't need to defile himself by entering his home. This man understands authority. Authority is the centurion's middle name. And because, as a centurion now, the emperor of Rome has delegated his authority to that centurion. So in other words, the centurion spoke with the the emperor's authority. So a foot soldier who disobeyed um, the centurion's order is not really disobeying the centurion. He's disobeying all of Rome. So the, the centurion understands authority. And what he does is he applies this authority structure that he's grown up with to Jesus. I mean, this is brilliant. It really is brilliant. It's something that the disciples didn't get. They don't understand this. So the centurion knew that because Jesus was under God's authority, Jesus himself was vested with God's authority. So when Jesus spoke, God spoke. And to disobey Jesus was to defy God. And since God created the cosmos uh, and he can heal upon command, Jesus is the one that actually can give that command. 
So this is fascinating. We have a Gentile warrior, a centurion, who has this unique sense of faith. He knew nobody could heal like Jesus. And it gets better. He also knew that commands have power, even at a distance. So to paraphrase what's going on, the centurion is essentially saying this. Look, Jesus, I'm a Lord and you're a Lord. I command soldiers, right? And they obey. I get that. But you command and all of creation obeys. The centurion instinctively knew that Jesus didn't need to be in that house for him to heal his servant. He knew that Jesus was different. Uh, This man knew that Jesus didn't need to perform some type of incantation, some kind of magic spell. Jesus didn't need to be physically in the room with his servant or his son to heal him. So how does Jesus respond to this, this pushback? Verse 10, hearing this, Jesus was amazed. He's amazed. And then he said to everybody following him, he said, all right, guys, listen up. I haven't found anyone in Israel that has a faith like this guy. Not even you 12 knuckleheads over here that are supposed to be following me. You guys don't have this kind of faith. You know, the the Gospels often, they, they show how other people were amazed at Jesus with all the teachings and the miracles. But here today, we've got the opposite. Jesus is stating how he himself is amazed. There are only two times in Scripture that, uh, that we see this, and this is one of them. The other time is when Jesus is preaching in Nazareth, and his home, the people in, the, in his hometown reject his preaching. So Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Today, Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith in God, his belief. Now, I have a question. How is Jesus amazed at anyone or anything? I mean, Jesus is God, so he's all-knowing. So how is he amazed? Don't you guys find that a little bit odd? I find that a bit odd. Well, to answer this question, I think it is important to focus on Jesus' humanity at this moment. So yes, in his deity, Jesus had already seen the faith of Abraham and Moses and David. But as a human, right, Jesus, he laid aside his his divine knowledge. So in this very moment, Jesus stands back and he is amazed at this centurion. Why? Because this guy didn't grow up in church. He wasn't like the Apostle Paul who sat at the, at the feet of great teachers. He wasn't like Timothy who had his mother and his grandmother teach him the scriptures. You know, Tim grew up in church. He grew up in the faith, same with the Apostle Paul. This centurion, he's the very opposite of these guys. And yet, he's got more faith than than the disciples standing right beside Jesus. So Jesus just marvels at this man's faith. Think about it. A Gentile killer has more faith than the 12 disciples. Wow. Wow. This is evidently a pretty big sticking point uh, for Jesus. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 could be another sermon within a sermon. He says this. Jesus says, look, I I tell you guys, many will come from east and west 
to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in other words, the people with much less Bible knowledge, they're going to respond to the gospel much more so than God's chosen people. The people that grew up in church, going to synagogue, learning the Torah. Jesus' point is this. Just because you're Jewish, it doesn't mean you get a free ticket to heaven. He's been, he's been beating that drum all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, once again, he contradicts everything that has been taught by the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees. This banquet, this meal that Jesus refers to here, it's found in Revelation chapter 19, um, which fulfills God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So he's referring to something that happens in the last book of the Bible um, that began in the first book of the Bible. Super cool, super fun. So in the eyes of many Jews now, one of the most significant and really appealing things about this meal is that they've been told, the Jewish people have been told that this is going to be totally free of Gentiles. And Jesus says, you're wrong. In fact, you're dead wrong. Look at this. Um, Gentiles, think of Gentiles, also known as sinners. Those two terms are used interchangeably throughout scripture. So anybody who is a non-Jew, right? You didn't grow up in the family. You're not chosen by God. You're not going to be at this banquet. That's what they, that's what they thought. That's what they hoped. Um, the people who are weeping that Jesus refers to, those are the people who thought they were Christians. They are weeping in a very real place called hell. The people gnashing their teeth are those who have always hated God, and they still hate them while they're there. So Jesus, he, you know, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, he closed that sermon with four illustrations about hell. And he brings it up again. Why does he do this? Well, he's not trying to scare unbelievers here. But once again, he's trying, he's trying to warn those people who think they are believers. He's trying to warn Christians who are not Christians. The Jews, they thought they automatically had eternal life as, as an inheritance. But Jesus teaches over and over and over again that eternal life, heaven, the kingdom of God, is for everyone who believes, including this Gentile soldier, warrior, killer. Verse 13, Jesus told the centurion, he says, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And this servant was healed at that very moment. So, I don't know. I think the only thing that really wasn't a surprise in this story was the miracle itself. Because there were several miracles to even get to verse 13. Jesus healed the centurion's servant or his son from a distance at that moment. Now, as I close this morning, I do want to discuss why Jesus performed these miracles. We got a lot of miracles coming up in Matthew's gospel. Um, some people had faith and some people did not have faith. 
So there's a lot of confusion and, and false hope today uh, regarding miracles. And, and, and I don't want you guys to be deceived by this. Because miracles within the Gospels, they are so taken out of context today. Uh, key point number one. The, pur- the purpose of miracles is to validate God's message. The purpose, I guess I should have put the primary purpose of miracles is to validate God's message. So the purpose of miracles, that is to establish credibility. And if you look in the Old Testament, you're going to see that really there's only three time periods where God gave specific men miracle working power. So let me give these to you. You look back at at Moses and Joshua. So around 1445 to 1380 BC, lasted about 65 years. The second time frame is Elijah and Elisha. Um, By the way, the the way to remember the difference between those two, Elijah has a J in there. I always remember this, that he jumped into heaven. That's an easy way to remember that, because otherwise I get him confused. Uh, That time frame is 860 BC to 795. So once again, about 65 years between those two men. And then thirdly, we've got Jesus and the apostles. First century, all the way up to around um, 70 AD, about 70 years. So I want you to think about this. Out of all of biblical history now, all right? So if you're a young earth person, we're talking about 6,000 years. Out of 6,000 years and all the billions of people on the planet, God only empowered approximately 20 people within a time frame of 200 years to perform miracles. And if you look carefully, miracles are are found really during very specific, what we call revelation times in the Bible. Uh, Revelation, God speaks directly to his people. He's declaring a specific message for a specific time. So miracles are not primarily a tool for evangelism, although they they did bring people to faith, nor are miracles primarily about relieving human suffering, although they did that too, obviously. It's been said that when, um, after the three years that Jesus was in Israel, there was no sickness and no disease. He cured it all. But the primary reason that Jesus and the apostles performed miracles was to prove that the message of the gospel was true. Brings us to key point number two. The healing in miracles is secondary. God's glory is primary. It's always about God's glory. So the healing in these miracles is secondary. The primary is God's glory. It's quite the opposite today, though, isn't it? You see all these so-called faith healers. They put on quite the performance. So what, what are we to make of these, these guys that, that call themselves apostles with, with healing power today? Well, let me give you three things here. Scripture provides three qualifications to be an apostle. Number one, apostles had to physically see Jesus after the resurrection. That's in Acts chapter 1. Number two, the apostles had to be personally commissioned and ordained by Jesus himself. That's also in Acts chapter 1. And here's the third thing. 
apostles had to perform the same miracles, the same ones that Jesus performed. Matthew chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. So obviously nobody meets those qualifications today. So when the last apostle died, the apostle John, the apostolic, what's called the apostolic age also died. Now I bring this up because I don't want you guys get, getting hurt listening to, to people calling himself or herself an apostle that says they have healing powers. Today's faith healers, they don't do miracles. What they do, if you've seen them, they heal back pain. They heal headaches. And they also charge money to do so. They don't walk into the local ER at the local hospital, do they? They don't visit dying people in hospice. They refuse to go into a children's hospital. And yet, true apostles in the first century, they performed all of these visible miracles. Uh, once again, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave them power over every disease and sickness. Now, there are plenty of these false teachers on social media. We've got several here in the Verde Valley as well. Um, and there's a big danger in this. Because if you're sick, or if you're broke, and they say they're going to heal you, and they don't heal you, they say it's your fault. Because you don't have enough faith. You see the danger in that? Well, how, how do I have more faith? How do I drum up more faith? What are you talking about? I believe. This is so dangerous in our day and age. It's demonic. It is absolutely demonic. Now, does God do miracles today? Of course he does. Absolutely. We've got miracle story after miracle story sitting in this room. But please know this. God doesn't do it the same way. He doesn't do it the same way. God performs miracles of his own volition. Our responsibility is to believe and pray, but not demand things from God. If God has determined that, that he's going to, um, if God has determined that he's going to receive more glory because you're sick, then he will receive more glory because of that. Y'all with me on that? It's a hard pill to swallow. I get it. Why, why does God do something so radically different from the apostolic age, especially 2,000 years later to now? Why are things so different? Why don't we have apostles today? Well, because God has given us something that the apostles didn't have at that time, and that is his word. It's the full counsel of Almighty God. We have the Bible. When you read the word of God, you hear the word of God. And then we understand, right? We understand that God is always good. He is always, always, always good. We come to an understanding that even though God says no to our prayers, that he's doing so for our benefit, yes, but once again, it's about his glory. We may not understand what God is doing or why he's doing it, but we can still trust him. 
we can still trust him in the midst of that storm. You know, guys, this, this life is so short. It is so short. And we are to trust him through all the storms, no matter where you are, whether it's health-related, whether it's financial, whether it's relationships. We are to trust God in the storm, knowing, knowing that the brokenness of this life, the pain that we feel physically, the financial difficulties, whatever it is, it's only for a short time. This life is so short compared to eternity. Because if we're a believer, the last breath that we take here, we're going to be looking into the eyes of Jesus. And please know this. The biggest miracle of all, I mean, I get it. This stuff is impressive, right? Jesus does all these miracles and we love it. But the biggest miracle that will ever be done is for God to turn a sinner into a saint. The biggest miracle is that you and I are in this room today. Because the, the miracles of God, they are so easy. For, for Jesus to heal someone, that's easy stuff. But for him to give you a new heart, to pay your debt, he had to die. He had to die on a Roman cross be buried, and then walk out of his grave three days later. God died so we could be sitting here today. So guys, I, I want you to know these miracle stories, they are absolutely miracles from the Lord God. But the primary responsibility, or not responsibility, but the primary way and reason that God did this is for us to believe that what he said in his word is true and to apply these things to our lives this week. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing story. You've given us a, a new face of faith here. This Roman soldier, his servant, possibly his son dying and no matter how strong or financially stable this man was, he couldn't fix the problem. And he goes against all the odds. He gets in front of Jesus and he asks for a miracle. He asks for something that only the chosen people were supposed to get. And yet the chosen people didn't, didn't want him. So Father, we praise you for this miracle that you've taught us today. And I also pray, Lord God, as we, as we deal with the problems, the situations, and the pain in our own life, that you would give us more faith. We pray for faith. We pray for life. I pray life over this Verde Valley and not death. Lord, give us more faith. Because as you teach us verse by verse, now we get to go out into the world and share Jesus day by day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.